Welcome to Ideas on Trap. In the light of the ongoing global pandemic, we will be hosting a series of short conversations around that theme. I hope you and your families are staying safe. Please follow all the recommended guidelines by the public health expert organizations that are responding to the crisis. Do not spread panic and only share information from credible and verified sources. Thank you. This is Ideas on Trapped Coronavirus Quickcast, and I am with Akin Oyibodi, who certainly needs no introduction and is joining this podcast for the second time. Welcome, Akin. Thanks, Toby. Popular opinion, and by this I mean social media, of course, say that Nigeria could have been better prepared for this. Is that true, or it's only a matter of time? Honestly, um, I think that for the most part, we've been very well prepared. And one of the things I have to recognize with this virus and the unique nature of this virus is that there's no playbook. Um, there's no playbook to lean on. So, so experts are learning on the go and constantly having to revise their positions. Um, one of the things that government cannot do is crowdsource policy on Twitter. So, when people say, oh, you know, shut the borders to this, to that. Again, the government has done what I consider the sensible thing, which is to lean on the experts to say, look, let us know when you think it's important to shut the borders. Um, let us know when you think it's important to institute a lockdown. A lockdown also has implications for supply chain. You know, how does food get around in the middle of a pandemic as well? So there, there are lots of moving parts. If you look at our response relative to other countries, I definitely think that we started flight restrictions much quicker than many other countries. Um, and I think that the only thing I would say that we could have done a bit better is in terms of interstate coordination. Um, I feel that the federal government might have been able to institute protocols, especially for states that showed a much, uh, much larger risk to this virus. So especially where we had sea or airports, um, I think that we could have contained those places a bit better. But overall, I think that the government has responded quite well. I mean, for me, one of the most important things is even just saying NCDC, for example, as an institution, has a law today that didn't exist a few years ago. So, so setting up NCDC properly, having a strong leadership team, I mean, Dr. Chikwe was with the WHO team in China when yeah. this pandemic to us in Nigeria seemed like something that was so far away. Um, getting him to sit on those kinds of visits to have first-hand experience of what was being done to curb these things elsewhere is part of the preparedness. The reality and the truth is, if we're being honest, you simply cannot build health infrastructure overnight um, in a place like Nigeria. Uh, and so this is a place where we've had a neglect of the health sector for the best part of 30 years. You know, you know people say, oh, the Chinese built hospitals overnight. But forget, they forget the infrastructure in China that enables that. You know, the construction infrastructure, the manufacturing infrastructure. We're now in a situation where countries are saying, you know, manufacturers of ventilators 
should not even export these ventilators, you know. Um, and so all of a sudden, you know, globalization has been turned on its head. You know, free trade has been turned on its head. And so it tells you the unique nature of these times. But, uh, but just to round up, I think that we've, we've dealt with this fairly well. Obviously, as with everything, things could have been done better, but I'll give the government a pass mark on this one. All right. So let's talk about healthcare funding. What, what do you think are the barriers to that? I think currently we spend about 0.6% uh, of the budget on, on the health sector. How can we reasonably raise that so that at least by the next crisis will be much, much better um, buffered? You know, I mean, I think 0.6% might be a bit misleading. I'm not sure if that's capital and recurrent. That might just be capital. Okay. So the thing with healthcare is, look, as with everything else, you need to have the right economics underpinning healthcare, right? I personally feel that where we should start the conversation from is universal healthcare coverage, right? Because if we're able to build a financing mechanism that ensures that everyone in Nigeria can get at least primary care coverage, then it starts to make it sensible to invest in a primary healthcare infrastructure that pays itself out. And then you, you find that if you build the base correctly, secondary and tertiary care become more, more attractive to finance. So for me, the first part is how do you solve the demand side? Um, and the demand side failure today is that very few people can pay for quality care. Um, and improving uh, that payment framework is very important. So, which is why I feel that the states who are running, who are trying to build health insurance programs today are states that we should watch out for. Because if you do it at subnational level across the 36 states, it becomes easier um, to finance healthcare infrastructure. But I agree that even with that, our investment in healthcare facilities has been criminally poor. And also just even the remuneration for, for healthcare workers. Um, and that's why we've seen an incredible brain drain, right? Because, again, this is talent that's in demand all over the world. You know, so we've got to recognize that, you know, when people have the right qualifications and the right skills, right, and know-how, we need to put a premium on that know-how and pay for it. So I, I hope that this situation starts to help us rethink how we treat healthcare. I have always held the opinion that a thriving economy is built on two fundamentals, having a healthy and skillful workforce, right? So the fundamentals for me are health and education. And if you do not invest significantly in those areas, you will, start, you will definitely end up with an uncompetitive workforce. Now, but when we think about healthcare uh, investments, <clears throat> it's also important to look at the totality of those investments. So things like the school feeding program, for example, in my opinion, is a very strong healthcare investment because it is intervening in a fundamental issue in uh, the healthcare space, which is nutrition, right? Um, and those are the things that reduce the comorbidity issues that you see with things uh, like the coronavirus, right? If you have well-fed children, they tend to grow into fairly healthy adults. And so we have to start to work on the preventive side of healthcare. The only thing that I, that I worry about is we haven't done enough research in this space, you know. And I always, a good example for me, if you've read uh, Poor Economics, uh, Banerjee and Duflo, is yeah. the conversation around mosquito nets, right? 
and the fact that you know we are not even quite sure what drives people to use these things what drives people to invest in things that they do not see an immediate return in you know and i always say healthcare is one of those things that people don't see an immediate return they only see the opportunity cost when they fall ill right so even if you spend money doing all these things saying come and get your children vaccines etc you know i mean if you remember in northern nigeria for example there was a situation with polio vaccines right it's very difficult to educate people to say invest in something today where you might not see the gain for another 10 years it's like going to the gym right if you exercise every day um for the next month or two you don't see the benefits of the change in lifestyle right but after a while you start to sleep better you start to get your body looking the right way you start to feel stronger but it takes a while you know and getting people to stay the course while they can't see the benefits of that investment is very important because if we invest in vaccination if we invest in uh, a lot of this preventive care we still need people to make the effort to go to those primary healthcare centers and we need to be sure that when they go there that they meet a nurse or a doctor there you know so there are lots of moving parts that we have to invest in do we even have enough healthcare workers today at the primary healthcare level because people are looking at this thing at a tertiary level today they're looking at this thing from the perspective of ventilators icu infrastructure etc the fundamental issue is that if you get the phc process correct a lot of the comorbidity issues that make this virus a lot more dangerous are taken away things like hand washing things like hygiene these are not things that you solve at tertiary level these are things that you solve at community level you know and that's where the investment must start um, and that's where government needs to take charge of saying we are going to put more money in ensuring people have portable water we are going to put more money in ensuring that there are community health workers or community social workers we are going to put more money in the primary healthcare infrastructure and then we'll help a universal coverage plan that allows people now come and invest commercially in tertiary and secondary care which in my opinion should be private sector led um, apart from teaching hospitals that government will invest in Oh okay so let's talk a bit about the economic cost here the incident rates are ticking up not alarmingly so thank goodness but we are we are approaching a lockdown phase and a lot of people are saying that Nigeria cannot really afford to lockdown so what do you think about that I mean I think the argument is is a weak argument right um and it's a weak argument from the perspective of it's almost like saying you know you can't afford to take your child out of school for one day or two days to get his vaccines or vaccines um what will happen is there's a chance that the child could contract measles and if the child gets measles the child then goes out of school for a term right which is a far worse scenario than a few days of taking vaccines that's how i look at this thing in its most basic form i think that the risk of doing too little is unimaginable and as someone said the risk of doing too much at this stage is simply irrelevant so i rather we do too much than too little and i rather we say oh in hindsight we didn't need a lockdown 3 weeks ago than saying oh we should have locked this place down 3 weeks ago So that's for me that's the trade off right this is one of those situations where i think it's fairly binary that if we are if we are going to take a call i'll certainly take 
what is seen as a an overzealous call than an undercooked one. And the truth of the conversation is, look, ultimately, what we must figure out as government is how do we minimize the issues that people will face? How do we ensure essential services are running? But what we do not want and what we cannot afford, I mean, I think Nigeria is now adding, we're now double digits. We're now adding new cases on the double digits uh, daily rate. And that is with limited testing capabilities. We're still focused on testing symptomatic, high-risk individuals, right? Yeah. So you've got to think about this and say, look, South Africa does private and public tests, right? So they, they are testing, I think, 15, 20,000 people they've tested now. And they've got a, over 1,000 cases as we speak today. Um, yeah. And our population is obviously larger. I mean, we might not have the comorbidity issues they have with things like tuberculosis and HIV, but we also have a density problem, right? So there are states in Nigeria today that this virus has not gotten into. If they get to those states where the game is over. I mean, I was reading some uh, machine learning-based reports yesterday, uh, proprietary stuff, so I can't mention who sent it to me. But effectively right. said, look, Benway State is the state you need to watch, right? And the report has gone in to say these four local governments in Benway State are your most high-risk local governments. Of course, I'm speaking with these guys now to see how we can get a state-by-state -state breakdown of this study. And what have they done? They've looked at the country by LGA and they've said, look, who are the people that cook with dirty foil, right? Who will typically have respiratory issues? Where is incidence of smoking high? Where are people over 60 predominantly living? Um, the population density of these locations, the availability of portable water in these locations, right? So they put about 10 to 12 different factors and roll that in to start to build, you know, high-risk zones. That's the level of data and tech we need to focus on. But for me, that also starts to tell us that we've not even, this thing has not hit our high-risk areas, and if it does, then the genie is out of the bottle, the game is over. So I, I don't think that the economic cost at this stage is a strong argument against a lockdown. I mean, I, as an individual, I am heavily worried about the economic impact of this, of this virus on Nigeria and, in fact, on the global economy. But I think that ultimately, it's only when you're alive that there's an economy to talk about, you know. And yeah. for me, the most yeah. important thing is keeping people alive keeping people predominantly healthy and we'll rebuild this even if it takes four or five years you know we'll, you you'll rebuild the economy eventually so what do we really need to do specifically now given the emergency situation to get testing up look i'm not a i'm not a public health expert right so right. i'm not sufficiently qualified to speak on on this so I speak purely as an individual, and these are like just my own personal um, thoughts, right? I definitely think that, I mean, what I hear and what I've read is that the PCR test that we, the WHO recommended PCR test, cost about two to $300 per person. I don't know if those numbers are accurate, but if they are accurate numbers, it's a hell of a cost, right? And so there's definitely a need to start to figure out how to get cheaper, but also very credible tests going. Because, I mean, $300 a person per capita is significant, right? 
But yeah. the other challenge as well for me is it seems like the rapid testing kits are not reliable. And we're hearing reports from Spain, uh, from Turkey, from even China that suggest that, you know, they, they are probably 30 to 35% accurate. So that margin of error is way too much for something that's giving people lots of false negatives. I mean, if it was going to make an error, I'd rather it errs on the false positive side than the false negative test, even though that in itself also has its implications. So I think that ultimately, um, to get testing up, what you need to do is first to start thinking about how to increase the number of molecular labs we have in the country. Um, I definitely think that, I mean, NCDC has done some great work. I, I heard Dr. Chikwe say on TV that they are adding four more labs to the five existing labs they have, taking it to nine, and that they are also increasing the throughput by ensuring that the labs run 24-hour shifts. Um, for me, the critical thing is how do we get more labs across the country, and do we have a sense of what those labs cost and what is required to set those labs up? Second thing is do we have the laboratory uh, staffing, the laboratory human cap capacity to run those labs across the country. And of course, ultimately, we hope that we get more reliable rapid testing kits globally and that, that, that can then trickle down into Nigeria. But I think some of the stuff they're doing today is the right stuff, which is increase the number of labs um, and definitely start to consider, I think one, of, one other thing to consider is to consider some cheaper alternatives, right? So I'm hearing that there are tests, for example, that might cost about 10,000 naira per person. It's still expensive, but I mean, it's yeah. way cheaper than, it's much cheaper than yeah, $300. Uh, so that would be my view that, look, get some of this cheaper testing, assuming that they meet all your QA standards, etc. But also, I wonder why we are not trying to privatize some of this stuff. And what I hear NCDC say is that you don't have to pay for a test. But I think that you, you don't have to pay for a test if you're asymptomatic makes sense. But if you insist that you want to take a test, I think that you should be able to go into a private laboratory and pay and take that test. Now, last night on Twitter, um, someone asked a very important question that, oh, in this whole, we've only tested 200 people. How did Davido and 30 people get tested? And someone sent me, you know, uh, off the record, an off the record message saying, hey, you know, he got himself privately tested. So the state government still has to validate those tests, etc. Um, and I said to myself, you know what? People should be able to take their test privately, but they shouldn't take the test and say, oh, state government will validate it later. No. The regulatory authorities, NCDC, the relevant state ministries, should go in there and certify certain private laboratories and say, well, these 10 laboratories are certified um, COVID-19 test locations. If you want to pay to get tested, by all means, go there and pay whatever it costs, right? But they also know that the test results doesn't come to you. It goes into, I mean, if you get a negative test, it goes into, you can get a result. But if the test is positive, the laboratory, etc., will send the test to NCDC, and NCDC can then institute the protocols to remove the person from their homes, etc., whatever needs to be done. So, I definitely think like private laboratories should be in included in the test conversation. Oh, okay, all right. Also on, on Twitter, we saw a case where the Port Authority came out to debunk or was it deny something that the NCDC posted about the cases that were reported on vessels 
Don't you think inter-agency cooperation and coordination is rather important at a time like this? I mean, absolutely. And I think, I mean, personally, I feel that, yes, I don't think that Twitter was the best place for two agencies of government to have a conversation, um, even though they <laughs> did say that what, what they sought was a clarification. But it tells you how the world is changing today, that government agencies are even engaging themselves on social media openly. And I guess it also speaks to the seriousness of the situation where they feel that, look, if this is the quickest place to get uh, traction, I might as well use, we might as well use it. Uh, but it definitely suggests that we need more uh, intelligence collaboration. And to be honest, you know, when you start out these things, you are going to miss some agencies out. But as the situation evolves and as you think about it more holistically, you start to expand the people that you have in the room. Um, in this instance, is what I, what, I, what I hear is that the, uh, the infected people were actually on a rig um, and not necessarily on a vessel per se. Um, and so Port Health had not been, because the Port Health have a, I mean, the, the Port Authority have a, a protocol, right, for, for dealing with cases like this. You know, they have the, the vessels, the captains have been told, you carry two yellow flags to indicate that you have a situation on board. Port Authority will, will the Port Health will contact NCDC. NCDC will come and do the testing and follow the necessary protocols. It looks like in this case, this happened on the rig um, and um, the testing was done by flying people in or something like that. And I don't have the details. But the, the, the suggestion is that this was not on a vessel, so NPA would not have been alerted. But I definitely think that there's a need for more intelligence collaboration. I mean, what that tells me again is that for people offshore, you know, people like NMPC or DPR, etc., need to be in that conversation, right? They need because for build, if you are going to build a policy for people offshore, you need the people with subject matter expertise to tell you what happens there, right? So I, I mean, I guess that you know the coalition of agencies will continue to broaden, um, but again, we're in unique times, right? So I mean, I'm not one to say that overall governments won't learn how to handle these kinds of situations better. You certainly hope that there will be few and far between, uh, but when it exists, at least let the government be able to respond better. Okay, all right. So, I mean, I'll go back to the... Of course, we can't um, sacrifice public health at the altar of economics, but is there a case for supporting the most economically vulnerable during the crisis? And if yes, what Form should that take? I mean, definitely, um, I, the case is strong, and I, I think if you see what Lagos State Government, for example, has done, it's to set up food banks, um, and I think many other states are doing the same. I mean, I know that, for example, my state, Ekit, is doing that, Kaduna State is doing that, and it's important that you know these things are done in a. You see, the supply chain. The logistics of this is very important, right? Because in a period where you're practicing social distancing, etc., you also don't want those places overrun by people. So my view is we need to spend some time thinking about how best to do this. My, I mean, my personal opinion is that instead of having set banks set up in specific locations, that these things can be done using mobile distribution channels, right? And just literally put these things in trucks, and hand them out to people in communities instead of having them come anywhere. 
but I definitely think that the most vulnerable people should. And it can't be a cash or monetary transfer at this stage. Why is that? Because the process of converting that money to to what is needed will actually be in a lockdown situation is counterproductive, right? So we know that 60 or 70% for our most vulnerable people, they spend at least 70% of the income on food, right? For me, it's important that they have, they have the food. Um, where do they go to convert that money to food? Where do they go to convert that money to their, their most um, important needs? I mean, in, my, in, my, in some of the communities in my state, the closest bank or ATM is a few kilometers away. Right. So even if you put money in people's wallets, right, we haven't built the mobile money infrastructure or architecture that allows us to deliver these things, um, provide people with food, provide them with the most basic food stuff and, you know, let them get by for the next two or three weeks. Of course, there are other conversations that need to be had, you know, for people who lose their jobs. Um, what kind of relief can we give? What can we use to encourage the private sector to keep people on payroll? Um, I definitely think that there are some tax incentives and some tax reliefs that we must consider. Even though on the flip side of that, government revenues are dropping. How does government fund some of the public goods it needs to fund? So it's a difficult choice for a policymaker. You know, these are the worst of times if you are managing fiscal policy. There are certainly no easy options. But to answer your specific question, I think that for our most vulnerable people, there are two things that we need to get to them. One is to give them access to communication. The other thing is to give them access to food. Okay, okay. A bit of a curveball before I let you go. We saw that some states started closing borders at some point. I think River State and Kano State. What do you think about that? Will that have long-term political consequences? I think that there are there are specific situations where certain rules can be invoked. Um, I mean, this is clearly an opportunity, or this is clearly one of those situations where you have to invoke some of those uh, some of those rules. And so, I don't know that it will have long-term political implications, because again, remember that if you if the governors sort of misuse some of these things. The federal government still has the option of declaring a state of emergency in that state. And, you know, um, so there are still checks and balances. But I think that there are certain laws. And if you think of the acts, uh, I forgot what the act is called, it's a 2004 law that allows the governors, um, essentially allows the state to say, look, we have an emergency today and we need to cordon off certain parts of the state, or in fact, the state in its entirety. Um, I definitely think that state governments have the, well, they, they should follow the right process, is what I will always say. Um, and I think that as a, look, I'm not a lawyer, I don't want to hold brief for constitutional law experts, but I think that there's a process that allows governors to do this properly. The only thing that you ask for is that they do it the right way. But ultimately, I think that this is a call that should be made by the federal government, right? Um, and I think that the real issue is ensuring that where are the most vulnerable locations, what is our data telling us about where to lock down and how quickly do we institute that lockdown? You know, but 
these are difficult times, you know. Um, a state governor who does this is looking out for the best interest of the subnational area they control. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I, I honestly think that by the middle of April, um, we would know exactly where we're at least where we're going. But I don't see any far-reaching political implications. No, nothing of the sort. Look, let me tell you one thing. Eh? Even, and I think Nigeria has been, and to, to go back to your first question, Toby, yeah. one of the things that I find very interesting about our approach to this situation is Nigeria is one of the very few countries I know who's actually saying, if you have a positive test, we will isolate you and keep you in hospital till you get better. In many countries, the, the, the medical infrastructure has been, healthcare infrastructure has been overwhelmed. That if you have a positive test, you are going to stay at home and, you know, you stay in your house. Try yeah. to, you stay in your house till you get better. You don't even call, even if you have some slight chest pain, they will say they can't pick you up in an ambulance. It's when, almost pretty much when people are almost having like respiratory failure. Um, and that's why, again, many of the people who are going into hospital are not coming out, right? Because they are going into hospital slightly late. So I think that from a, from a healthcare coverage perspective, you know, we need, it's very important that we keep the numbers at the level we are seeing, right? Um, Definitely. And that the issues do not magnify to the point where more people are starting to need uh, respiratory assistance. You know, if we look at what Lagos State is saying, um, I looked at the numbers yesterday and it was approximately 40,000 they were modeling. And I was saying to myself that this is a very, very conservative model. If we keep the numbers at 40,000 in Lagos, I think we've been very, very successful at managing the situation. In a city of 20 million people, keeping infection rates to less than 1% of the population will be a fantastic outcome for Nigeria and for Lagos. Um, and if we keep infections, even nationally, at under 2 million people, um, I think it will be a fantastic outcome for the country because we're effectively saying that only 1% of our population will be infected. Um, the last point I wanted to make was, it's very interesting to read. I mean, I've been reading some of the um, data analysis on Nigeria. Again, this is some proprietary stuff, so I can't share it. Um, yeah. But it suggests that, you know, the southern part of the country is more at risk, which is obvious because population density is much higher um, south of yeah. Niger. So, again, the areas where we have large population sizes, etc., seem to be a bit less prone to this situation and that's why if you look at for me if you look at the north it's important to isolate abuja and ensure that the spread does not exceed does not expand beyond abuja uh because if if this thing starts to spread into the northwest of the country and goes into states like kano and kaduna then we have a nightmare on our hands right um if it goes towards the north central area to places like benue then we have a problem on our hands. So, I, I mean, for me, the important thing is we're doing the right things and this isolation at least restricts the spread of the virus. Uh, and so if some borders are being shut, at least if we don't have any confirmed cases in those places today, um, it reduces the chances that those places pick up this infection. And it buys us the time, the critical time we need to improve our healthcare infrastructure over the next, I would say, 12 to 24 months. Okay. Uh, so finally, before I let you go, I know I said that before. <laughs> um, people are saying that the president is less visible at this time. 
and that it's really a time for strong leadership and um, for him to address the nation, give reassurances, like we've been seeing with some other countries. How important do you think that is psychologically? I mean, there's only one answer to that, right? I think that there are non-medical interventions that are critical in times of a pandemic. And I think that's obviously this one of them is a strong signal of authority. So I definitely agree 100% with those who say that we should be hearing more from the president of the country at this time. There's no, there's no debate about that. Now, but for whatever reasons, whether it's a reason of style, whether it's, you know, the president, I think as a government, I think that the government has responded correctly. Have we communicated as strongly as we could? Probably not at national level, but I think that the subnationals have certainly done more than enough. Um, the governor of Lagos State, and Lagos is the epicenter of this situation, is on television every other day. I think that we've seen the lawn of uh, State House Marina more times in the last two weeks than we've seen since 1999. Right? Um, yeah. So yeah. I definitely feel like the governor of Lagos State deserves a lot of credit for the, and his communication style is very sincere, very clear, um, very open. You know, so and he doesn't look flustered. He looks like he's in charge of the situation. And same for the Commissioner of Health, to whom uh, much credit must be given, he and his team. But again, recognize yeah. that Lagos has a playbook. You know, Lagos has gone through Ebola, um, a state like Edo, for example, I'm quite confident about. One, because Governor Baseki is a very serious governor, but Edo has also gone through Lassa fever, right? And which is why the Iroa uh, Specialist Hospital has the kind of capabilities it has you know so in my state governor Faemi has been out speaking to the people and has been frontal about this situation and even as an individual has been clear about following some of the isolation principles and guidelines after coming in contact with infected victims governor Elrufai in kaduna even to some extent has ceded some of that work to his deputy governor which is also showing that look Without the governor speaking, the government is speaking, you know. So, I, I mean, and those are just, I've used those four examples. I'm certain that, you know, in some other states, the governors are on television, on radio. This morning, I saw Governor Akere Dolu's uh, skits, you know, hand washing, etc. you know, signaling to the people that this is what you need to do. And I think that, obviously, there's a need for the president to do some of these things, you know. I mean, I think that, in certain places, presidents who have been criticized for poor economic decisions, etc., have found that, look, this is an opportunity for us to show leadership, right? President Ramaphosa in South Africa, for example, was very strong. I thought it was the best presidential message I've seen of anybody. Uh, last night, President Akufo-Addo in Ghana, who is coming on that very strong electoral challenge, a strong electoral very challenge from, uh, from former President Mahama, came out and I, I mean, if you, you usually use social media to gauge the mood of the nation. Um, the Ghanaians seem very roused, you know, by the address of their president, you know, and this was, but again, I feel that, yes, maybe, if, I mean, if there's going to be, for example, a presidential order on a lockdown, etc., it might be a great opportunity for President Buhari to speak. 
I have never thought that the president is quite the orator. I think that he's sort of drawn a lot of his followership from non-verbal, in fact, from almost being very, from speaking very little, right? Um, so I, I don't think that he's going to learn to be an orator overnight. And the governors that you've seen come out to speak frequently are people who are used, who are more, I would say, at home with uh, public communication. So I mean, when people say, oh, come and let the president show a proof of life, you know, I think that that's a bit of a distraction, right? The focus, let's stay on message. The message is on signaling to the people that this is what you need to do. Uh, because a large part of this population still listen and look up to the president. But when people then sort of water the message by saying, oh, you know, by carrying some that has been flown abroad, etc. I mean, honestly, that is not something that the president will ever respond to by coming out to speak. You know, it's almost like giving oxygen to something that is a non-story. So the call for the president to come out to speak from a the nation wants to hear from you perspective. What should we be doing? What is the government yeah. doing? Reassure yeah. us, right? I think that that's a very, very important call. And I certainly hope that it is one that the president makes um, very soon. I agree with you. Thank you very much, Jackie. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks a lot, Toby. Thanks a lot. Yeah.